Hey, you've tuned in for This Week in Law. And coming up, we've got the future of internet law and technology with two law students from New York University, Trevor Tim and Diva Roberts. We're, we've also got Evan Brown, and we're going to talk about paywalls, good versus bad business models, artificial intelligence meets electronic discovery, and hey, have you gotten your Charlie Sheen trademark yet? All this and more next on This Week in Law. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell, episode 106, recorded April 8, 2011. Diva meets the Diva. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twill. And by Carbonite Pro, online backup for your law office. Carbonite Pro backs up your files automatically and continuously, so you're always protected. Learn more and try it free at CarbonitePro.com. Hey, you've tuned in for This Week in Law. I'm Denise Howell, and we're here today with the future of law and technology and also media law. Two folks from the Legal As She Is Spoke blog at New York University. These folks are interested in the intersection of law and journalism and hey so are we because that is uh, such an amazing area of law particularly when you throw technology into the mix so i'd love to introduce you now to trevor tim hi trevor nice to have you on the show and uh, also there with him is diva roberts hi diva hi thanks so much for having me it's wonderful to have you guys. Thanks so much. Also joining us is Evan Brown from Hinshaw and Culbertson in Chicago and the Internet Cases blog. Hello, Evan. Hey, Denise. How's it going? It's going great. I'm always so excited when we have law students on the show because these guys are really where the law is heading. So yes, we they, want they, to... Uh, and they're at uh, New York uh, Law School. They know what's going on. So it's, it's going to be a fun conversation. Well, I think we always get confused about that. It's not, it's not NYU, it's New York University, I, is that right? I, I want to correct you, but it is New York Law School in Tribeca. New York, New York Law School, great. Thank you so much for uh, letting us know that. I, you know, uh, I've, I've seen NYU, but not New York Law School. So it tends to uh, throw me for a loop because it's just not in uh, my personal frame of reference. Where Have you even York been east of the uh, Mississippi, Denise? Not so much, no. <laughs> I worked one... Uh, <laughs> One summer as a law student in uh, Boston, and wow. that, that summer I took my one and only trip to New York and uh, went to Greenwich Village and the Metropolitan Museum and, and really, really need to get back there and spend a bit we more time. At our, at our new building, we have a great new all-glass high-tech building. Wonderful. Well, maybe before too long, you guys can uh, help me fill in the gaps in my cultural education of the great city of New York. Um, and Chicago, too. I've also visited Evan, but again, very infrequently. Was there one right. freezing January for a movie premiere that my uh, husband was working on. Yeah, that happens. And, yes, exactly. Well, um, let's get right into some really interesting things that are going on out there at the intersection of law, technology, and journalism. Uh, the first, this daily project, The Daily, I believe it's called. 
from News Corp. We have um, Neiman Labs taking a look at how this thing is doing. And uh, John Abel, if I'm pronouncing that right, wrote this up at Epicenter. Uh, and the prognosis apparently is not that great for um, the daily getting the subscribers that it's going to need to survive. And uh, I wanted to run this business model by you guys. Uh, the legal tie-in is the way in which this content is so protected. You know, in order to access it, you have to either be a very proficient hacker or you have to subscribe. Um, and initially, the interest in this was pretty good. Um, News Corp said a month ago that downloads were in the hundreds of thousands. But uh, Neiman decided to do a study that um, looked at how frequently stories were being tweeted out from within the application. And apparently there was initial rush of attention. Um, then, you know, there was some bu bugs that needed to be ironed out. And so things dropped off again, little spike up as that improvement happened. And then the daily started charging folks. Um, I guess, you know, I've never uh, actually subscribed to it on my iPad, uh, but I guess they must have offered it for free at first. And then uh, when they started charging, of course, they had a big drop off. So I wanted to, um, uh, ask you guys about this business model and the whole concept too of putting things behind a paywall and and what sort of discussion around that there has been um, in your coursework at school. So Trevor, why don't you start off and uh, give us your take on the daily and where it's headed? Well, I think the problem with the daily, as you said, it's an iPad only application. Um, so people without iPads aren't going to hear about the daily. It's not, it's not indexed on Google. If you want to search for their stories, you can't. I remember a couple weeks ago, actually, there was, there was, uh, the daily had some sort of scoop about some, some problem between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And somebody mentioned it on Twitter. And I was like, well, I want to read this story, but I couldn't, I couldn't find it. And there's just no way to, to keep the buzz going about a paper when the vast majority of people can't find it even if they want to. Right, and that's kind of adding on to that is probably why I think the number of tweets is not really reflective of how popular it is because like there's not that much access to be able to tweet about it to begin with. So it's not really a good gauge of popularity as the study is trying to say it is. Right, right. I, yeah. I think just to, to get down to their methodology, I think what they're trying to track is tweets from within the application itself. So that's one right. of, that may be the only way that you can tweet about stories. Exactly. Um, that's in the like a problem that, you know, you have to be within the application itself to send mm -hmm. out tweets and people might not want to do that. That's not how they tweet any other story. I see what uh, you're saying. Yes. And so that's, it's, it's just kind of limiting the reader completely. And they, you know, they said they got the, they got a lot of press at the beginning because uh, they offered it for free. People download it for free so they, they could, you know, send out a press release saying we have hundreds of thousands of people. But once people start to realize they have to buy it, why would they buy the Daily? Um, they, you know, they, the Daily made a big, a big splash about hiring a bunch of reporters, but if they're, not, if they're not offering truly original content, there are hundreds of other applications that you can get for your iPad where you can read just as good quality journalism for free. So... Um, it's a perplexing strategy in my mind. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I like this term that 
John Abel over at uh, Epicenter coined, and he calls it the link and search economy. Um, and how and he posits that this isn't really part of that economy because of you know the various barriers to being able to both link and search for these articles. Um, Evan, for me, this is a um, a complete deal breaker. The the daily will never be part of how I gather information and pass it along. Um, and I do think that our our news consumption. Um, Dynamic has changed from uh, a time when people used to read an article and think about it, and then maybe you know if they bumped into a friend, they would discuss it. Now, you know, I think as we are all actively engaged in reading, we're thinking as we read how to pass it along. We're right. We're um, aggregating and uh, oh, what is the word I'm looking for? My my poor brain is just completely going uh, by the wayside these days. Well, we're doing that. We, we certain, to a certain extent, want to curate stuff for people That's in the our- word. Thank you very much. Right, right. <laughs> yes, we want to curate. We're, we're curating as we read. Um, right. And I know that, you know, as I go along, immediately when I realize that this article is pertinent to someone in my life, be it a business contact or personal contact, my Aunt Millie, whatever, um, I need to be able to, you know, pretty immediately turn that around and send it to them and make sure that it's gotten in front of them. So, um, Evan, do you think that uh, business models like this that ignore that reality um, have a prayer? And have you read The Daily? I've never read the daily. I don't have an iPad. That's maybe the biggest uh, reason. But, you know, who knows whether they have a prayer. It just doesn't seem really intuitive to me as, and I'm just speaking as one who consumes content on the web and, and you know, considers myself a curator and certainly enjoy uh, sharing content that I find interesting and, and put greater value on content that others who I respect and admire in my social network to, to you know, put greater value to, to that. So um, to me, it just seems like a model like this, which is operating outside of this link and search economy, does away with the very best attributes of the web uh, that, that pertain or that deal with or kind of take advantage of the fact of the widespread distribution of, of things. Um, when you were talking about your, your aunt, you know, you, you want to share something with her, for example, something will come into to your to your awareness, and you'll want to to share it with you know a particular person that you know. For for example, I think that most of us who do the kind of stuff that we do, you know, we write blogs, we uh, pay attention to what we're putting out on Twitter, we update our Facebook status, we you know maybe maintain a tumble log or whatever. We have this uh, kind of generalized. Uh, impulse to want to share with those who are are following us. It's almost as if there's this entity out there comprised of uh, the those who are enthusiasts of your con uh, of your content that you are either creating yourself or wanting to share. So, we when we can have that uh, abstract idea in mind, the web allows us, and these tools that we have on the web allows us to do that very easily. And that's really the beauty of it. If we're going to do something that's outside of that environment or, you know, operating in a, a uh, you know, a, a parallel universe, a parallel ecosystem out here outside of that link and share uh, system, uh, namely, you know, behind a walled garden or some kind of closed thing like the, like the daily here, um, you're going back to what Rupert Murdoch seems to think is 
you know, something grand, you know, this, this way that people really, the, what he talks about is this, it's the model for the way stories are told and consumed. Well, sure, that's the way that, uh, uh, that stories were told and consumed, you know, in the Pleistocene era 12,000 years ago, sure. Uh, but we've got a lot more wonderful ways of distributing information now uh, with the, the open web and this, what well, we keep saying it ad nauseum now, this link and share economy environment um, that's really where information uh, goes and it's where our natural tendency to, to go find information is and it's where it can have its its greatest effect and so it seems a real shame to uh, separate or extract oneself from that really vibrant and, and dynamic environment so if it has a prayer it's got to be notwithstanding those obstacles that I see to it so related to sorry go ahead diva I was just going to say, with all that being said, and I agree with everything that Evan has um, said, but I'm kind of confused as to what the Daily is even saying its selling point would be in today's market. You know, I, right. I guess. Well, let's let's think about that. They want to they want to present something that is an enjoyable read on the iPad that is timely, although it certainly is not as timely as going directly to the web, uh, but timely enough, they think, for most people's interests and needs and uh, is is a flipboard like experience you know that really leverages the capabilities of tablet devices and operating systems to make reading on that platform a pleasure so you know I mean I think that those are are good starting points but everything we've been discussing um, <laughs> I think dooms it to not gaining a whole lot of traction either among sort of the masses of people who are out there who aren't going to want to pay for the experience or among folks who are very connected at, such as Evan was describing and need to be able to curate and share as they go along and read. Um, so along these lines, you guys are there at New York University. I'm sure the New York Times is a big part of your online and possibly offline lives. Um, and you're focusing there on law and journalism. So. Talk to me about the paywall that has just gone into effect and uh, what the reception has been there among the student body. Well, um, actually, I was just going to say, going off Evan's point, we're just talking about uh, linking and sharing. The, the New York Times, I think, is doing some things a little better than the Daily in that, that sense, in that the, the New York Times says that you can now have 20 articles for free online, and then after that, you have to start paying. But there's also kind of uh, different loopholes in their system where if, you're, if you click a link on a social network site like Twitter or Facebook, then you can essentially click on unlimited articles. And so this is, this is their solution to get around the problem of, well, everybody's sharing with everybody and we don't want to be left out of that loop. Um, at the same time, I think that's a huge hole in their strategy because I mean, I know a lot of younger people like us. At this point, we might not even go directly to the New York Times site. We might get sent a story on Twitter um, or, you know, somebody will email us a link. And so it's, it's a lot easier for us to get around that, that paywall. But the thing with the New York Times is they already have such a built-in readership that there might be a lot of older, older people who don't necessarily use social networking a lot and that you know, have come to rely on the New York Times for years and that they are willing to pay, which 
um, you know, it's not that much and it's cheaper than a uh, regular subscription. So um, it's something that might end up working out, but I think it's too early to tell. I mean, I'm not one of the older people. I'm one of the younger people who actually is, for whatever reason, very loyal to the Times, and I do go there first, and I kind of feel like the paywall was something I was kind of, you know, it was like a ticking time bomb kind of thing, and I knew it was going to happen, but like Trevor said, there are loopholes, so I'm not that upset about it, but I am very loyal to the Times, even though I'm not old, like you said. <laughs> no, I'm saying, I mean, <laughs> people who are younger are loyal to the Times. I mean, not, you know, they might be loyal to the Times, but they might not necessarily be going to right. the Times site to see their articles first. I mean, the Huffington Post is a great example um, where they often link me to a story from the New York Times, which I might not have seen if they didn't show me first. And right. Exactly. Yeah, Again, that, that curation role is so important as to what you're actually going to pay attention to and read. And I think the New York Times recognizes that, you know, in this ecosystem they have tried to set up, they're trying to get out of the way of curative type entities and allow them to link in. But, you know, perhaps this paywall is uh, more porous than they ever intended it to be. Um, we have a very interesting story in our links at delicious.com slash thisweekinlaw slash 106. You can check out everything we're going to attempt to discuss here on the show today uh, about the Atlantic Wire, a feature of the Atlantic. Now, I take it the Atlantic Wire is granted some sort of dispensation from the New York Times and is one of these entities that is able to link through and not have their click-throughs count against people's 20 per month limit. Um, if I'm wrong about that, please, in IRC, uh, jump in and give me your understanding of how this works. Uh, but what they've decided to do thus is since you can't directly get at uh, the breaking news from the LA Times, or I'm sorry, the New York Times, uh, the Atlantic Wire is curating and then summarizing the information the Times has curated and then summarized, as put by Megan Garber over at uh, Neiman Jur Journalism Lab. Um, so uh, really, they're, they're making available for people what the Times itself has not, and capitalizing on the fact that uh, the Times has made this porous. I, I would submit that you know a lot more readers would go to the Atlantic Wire and be able to you know, get that gateway into the times rather than coming up against the paywall and then thinking, oh, well, gee, I really need to read this story, so I'm going to pay for it. What do you think, Evan? Well, isn't it that uh, it's not that, well, I don't know. I read this not as the uh, Atlantic Wire having some special dispensation, but that they were just essentially recommending good content for you to click through and use your, you know, like free 20 clicks per mm -hmm. month. And so that if you were to choose to click on one of these links provided by the Atlantic Wire, that would count against your 20 clicks. And so once you had exhausted those options or those possibilities, you couldn't go in anymore. Isn't that what they're, what they're doing here? So it's like, it's yeah, like that's an extra step. What, wait, what'd you say, Diva? I was just agreeing with you. That's how I also understood it. They help you better navigate okay. and better allocate how you choose to dispense like your 20 free articles. Right, right. right. So, I mean, that, our discussion here, if I could just jump in, uh, points up the difficulty of this 
system that the New York Times has put in place uh -huh. is that you mm. don't really know, you know, whether your click is counting or not based on where it's coming from because, you know, some people have clicks that'll go through and not count oh, yeah. and some don't. And it's just sort of this big labyrinth of, you know, who's going to really, are you going to keep a spreadsheet and figure out, okay, I've got 19 more clicks left. I don't <laughs> think so. You know, I think that the friction that this raises is just going to give people a headache. And you know, again, we were talking before the show, there's an excellent new um, episode of Triangulation also here on the TWIT network out. And it's uh, an interview with Cory Doctorow where he hits right on this issue and says, you know what, when people bump into these kinds of barriers, they just kind of glance off them and go elsewhere. You know, the, they route around the friction. Mm -hmm. um, and, my impression with, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but my impression yeah. with trimmings is that that wouldn't Clicking on the trimmings link wouldn't count as using one of your 20 free articles. I would imagine they're considered a third party. And if you click through them to the Times article, then that would count. But I'm not ah. sure. Is that your question too? Um, I, I mean, it's really complicated, I think. I think if you, you, if you use a search engine, find stories, you get a certain right. number more per day. And then social networks unlimited. And so I, I think the purpose of their... Um, is to avoid using up your... Yeah, yeah, it's either to avoid using up or just to use your clicks more carefully. More efficiently, yeah. yeah. Right. And uh, the, 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 the true brilliance from all this comes from the, you know, the Atlantic Wire's opportunism and actually building something of interest that is based on this. I mean, it's very... Yeah. Um, yes. you know, it's a great ex example you know, of... Yes, you know, so it's 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 filling in a certain, um, you know, uh, it's occupying a, a special place in that... Um, that ecosystem, it, it's it's selecting yeah. itself that way. And that is the coolest part, entrepreneurial like zeal to do it quickly. Yeah, and uh, uh, kind of on the other end of that, there was a, uh, as soon as actually this paywall was announced a couple weeks ago, there was a Twitter account that started right away called Free New York Times. And so essentially it was just somebody saying, you know what, we're going to just link to every story on Twitter and anybody who wants to read the New York Times for free can just follow us on Twitter. Um, right. I think that's I think that's a little different than what they're doing here because they're more curating here. They're okay. giving their opinion, and mm -hmm. I, I I'm pretty sure the New York Times sent that Twitter account a cease and desist letter two days later. So it's not you know you people aren't going to be able to to bypass it that easily to the point where they're blatantly just saying, listen, here's the free paper. We'll give you the links. They're going to have to have some sort of value added um, part there. By the um, way, the uh, the new Twill drinking game is every time somebody says curate or curation, take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely for this show. We didn't come prepared for that, though. We just have yeah. our coffees. <laughs> yes, and I'm, I'm still before noon here on the West Coast, so I would need there, a mimosa or something to, to join you. Every reason to play then. Yeah, let's go. Yes. <laughs> it's happy hour somewhere. Right. So, you know, our tip of the week last week on episode 105 was how, you know, one very legal way of getting around the Wall Street Journal's uh, paywall is to click in. And that's that's quite a paywall. That one is much less permeable than the New York Times. But if you click in from a Google search, then you're in to the full text article, you know, at least for as long as they're making it available. And that's probably quite temporary as well. But, you know, if you have a group of people you're trying to convene around a story like I do for this show each week, it's very helpful to be able to say, okay, well, go to the first search result here and uh, you'll get the full text of the article, you know, at least for the duration of time that you need to be looking at it. Um, so, 
you know, even this very, very um, stringent paywall, they have had to sort of bow to the fact that they want people coming in from Google, so they're going to make that exception. Yeah, um, I think uh, Wall Street Journal is a interesting case because, you know, Rupert Murdoch owns the Wall Street Journal, just like he owns a daily, whereas right. the daily is seen as failing right now, although it's too early to tell, and the Wall Street Journal's paywall has probably been one of the only successes because, the, you know, the Wall Street Journal, kind of like the New York Times, is an established, uh, you know, newspaper in this country looked at as one of the two or three top national newspapers. And they can offer something truly unique, as in they, they offer business news that no one else offers. And that's the thing with The Daily is that what is The Daily offering that, that none of these other papers are offering? I mean, sure, they might have good reporters, but are they stories that you can't find anywhere else? And I think that's the number one issue that they're going to ultimately run into. Um, the Wall Street Journal can offer something where people will be willing to pay. Right. The Daily doesn't do anything best, it seems. So I don't think it's going to have much traction. Right. Right. Well, we, um, we had an example that I think is really a nice supplement to this discussion this week of a congressperson. Uh, here is Representative Jared Polis who used all of this paywall activity as an analogy to really illustrate why net neutrality is important and people should get behind the FCC's net neutrality proposal. Now, we haven't talked about net neutrality on the show um, for a bit here uh, because when the FCC's latest proposal came out, it was either kind of a love it or hate it thing. Um, people either thought it didn't go far enough to protect net neutrality or People on the other end of the political spectrum thought that um, intervening in this ecosystem at all by the government was the wrong thing to do. Um, and for some reason, this has tended to break down on party lines uh, with Republicans being anti the new proposal and Democrats and independents and libertarians being uh, more for it, uh, sometimes paradoxically so. Um, so if uh, we're ready in the studio, I'd like to play a bit of video from uh, Representative Polis speaking in the House, and then we'll talk about it uh, after it plays. John, you good many, to play? Good publication. Uh, but it's hard to strike that balance. What you are doing by not having, what, we are, what this body is considering, by not having a net neutrality regime in place, is to add another party to this contract between me and the Star Tribune. And say, you know what, it's not good enough, Jared Polis and Star Tribune, that they're letting you access it or you have to pay. There's also the provider. And you know what? You could have the provider say, you know what, we're not going to serve up these ads. We're going to serve up our own ads. You know what? We're not going to give you access to the Star Tribune unless you buy our newspaper plus service for an extra $14.95 a month. You're changing the value chain in a way that is unprecedented and conveying enormous value. Conveying enormous value because you're putting them in charge of the whole internet of the providers and the bandwidth and the pipelines. Yes, they are important to have. And yes, they need to have a return on investment. And yes, they support the FCC rules as a fair way to do that. Yes, given their dithers, would they rather have a reach and control the internet? Sure, they'd rather control all the ad space on every newspaper and every other website. But they know that's a reach. There's no serious market valuation that's given by investors or investment al anal analysts to that reach scenario that would threaten and kill the very internet itself by interspersing a third party on my private agreement with the Minneapolis Star Tribune. That's why we need to have a free and open internet for all. 
to ensure that there's not another party that comes in and steals the intellectual property and the usage of others and conveys it to their own advantage. And that's exactly what the very reasonable SEC rules have put into rule. I reserve the balance. Okay, so um, let's go to Trevor on this. That's the first time I've ever seen this paywall discussion used as an analogy to um, why net neutrality is so necessary. That it, it adds that net neutrality, if you if you don't have it, um, adds another layer, um, a barrier, if you will, that uh, gets in between our relationships with these private parties. Do you agree with that? And uh, give us your thoughts. It was an interesting comparison. I've never heard that before, but it's kind of it's along the lines of of every other argument people are used for net neutrality is that essentially uh, internet service providers could or will be able to create some sort of tiered internet where they can tell you what you can see and if you want to see a certain thing they might be able to charge you more for example like they'll say well we'll give you google yahoo and facebook for the regular price but if you want to read news sites beyond that we're going to charge you $10 more, which is essentially what the congressman is saying, which is the, their, their quote-unquote news plus uh, package, where they'll be able to um, charge you more for certain sites. That, that also causes another problem, which is that it kind of makes the barrier for the barrier of entry in the Internet uh, much higher for people who are trying to get in. The best part about the Internet um, for the last 15 years is it's, it's created so much innovation and entrepreneurship uh, because... Anybody can start a website if they have a good idea. Um, they can create their own website, create their own business, and make a lot of money from it. But if the internet service providers are allowed to control um, the speed of the internet for certain sites, um, that could mean that maybe uh, a certain company could pay those internet service providers to uh, make their websites run faster, and that all other websites are going to run at a very slow pace. And so. Um, or they could be cut out at all. So I think um, the idea behind net neutrality is to uh, keep fairness um, for everybody, um, just like the Congress, Congressman was saying, that there shouldn't be a third, a third party uh, in between the person who's going on the website to consume something and the website which is selling something. It shouldn't be, uh, the Internet service provider shouldn't be the all-knowing God, essentially, that allows or disallows you to do what you want. Yeah, and kind of taking it one step further, what scares me just intuitively in terms of like First Amendment and freedom of speech is that ultimately, like you said, it could kind of start to silence the less popular voice and the small guy. And then, I mean, that's just, that's obviously an extreme ultimate fear, but it kind of does bring up those kind of First Amendment fears. Yep. Evan, I was heartened to um, see that there are Congress people out there that, you know, seem to be quite passionate if you, uh, if you take... Congressman Polis's uh, rhetoric as an indication um, on the topic of net neutrality and of protecting it and backing the FCC. Uh, what did you think of his uh, discussion? Probably no one better in Congress, you know, no one is better equipped in Congress to address those issues than what Jared Polis is. He is uh, the founder of BlueMountainArts.com. Do you remember that? It was you know more popular in the Web 1.0 era. You know, sending e you know, electronic greeting cards to your friends and family. And he's, uh, you know, been very active in the technology space as an entrepreneur and as a businessman. Otherwise, he's one of the co-founders of Techstars out in Boulder, um, you know, with uh, along with uh, 
uh, Brad Feld and, and others out there. So, uh, you know, he knows what he's talking about. He knows all about, you know, what innovation means, what it means for startups to be facing all of the obstacles that they have already in terms of executing their ideas and getting financing and making their vision actually work. Uh, you know, he's, he's well familiar with all of those obstacles that companies face regardless of anything crazy um, that the internet service provider layer uh, would, would do to, to make things more difficult. So, um, yeah, Jared Polis knows what's going on. It's uh, good that somebody's like him, like like him is there, especially since Rick Boucher, you know, from Virginia, lost in the last uh, election. It's great that we have uh, voices like like Jared Polis there. He's he's a good guy. Yeah, he's sort of the opposite of someone who would get up in front of Congress and talk about the internet as a series of tubes. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, well, the courts are also getting a little bit more savvy about the way uh, technology works. And we've got a decision about the impact that IMs can have on written contracts. And I want to get to that in just a moment after we thank one of our sponsors here for episode 106. And that is Squarespace.com. Squarespace.com is the fast and easy way to publish a high quality website or blog. I use it, a lot of my friends use it. Certainly go to squarespace.com and go to their examples page and you can see the whole range of things that people are doing with Squarespace. Really, the limitations are only bounded by your imagination and vision as for what you want your site to be, whether you're interested in having a pretty straightforward blog or a much more uh, rich and full uh, web experience for people visiting your URL, you can do it all with Squarespace. Its UI is incredibly easy to use and intuitive. Uh, you can use it to create and manage any kind of website or blog. It's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. There are hundreds of design templates to choose from, and it's so easy to take one of these really great templates that they put out there for you to pick and then customize it to make it look however you would like and design it to design it to fit your needs. The all-inclusive service includes several modules to build your website. There's a blog module that includes import and export support for WordPress, Blogger, Movable Type, and TypePad. And that means your data is not locked in to Squarespace. We're talking about openness and net neutrality, and uh, this is very uh, consistent with those ideals and goals that you can, once you put something in somewhere, you can readily get it out and you're not going to be blocked by any kinds of barriers. Uh, there's a forum component, there's a form builder uh, to collect information from site visitors. Uh, there are all kinds of widgets to bring in your social media presences, uh, whether it's Flickr or Facebook or what have you, Twitter. Um, you can integrate all of that very seamlessly with your site with the widgets that they make available, Google Maps and more. Uh, there's website tracking and built-in wonderful and again, you know, out of the way, not in your face, just leveraging um, the way the web properly works, search engine optimi optimization, uh, permission access handling, cloud architecture for speed and st site stability, uh, an innovative drag and drop Ajax interface and iPhone and iPad apps that let you log into your website and update it on the go. You can use Squarespace for all your website needs, build it, host it, and update it anytime, and you get a free 14-day trial when you go to squarespace.com. So don't take my word for it. Go over there, log into Squarespace, sign up for a free account. You don't need a credit card. 
for 14 days. You just try it out. You build your own site. They'll help you get a custom URL. They'll help you um, very seamlessly point that at your Squarespace site. And uh, when you go on over there, use the URL squarespace.com slash twill to tell him that you heard about it on This Week in Law. Thank you so much, Squarespace, for your support. Okay, Evan, uh, let's talk about written contracts and the fact that they often have clauses in them that state that oral modifications are not going to change the terms of the contract. So, in other words, the parties could be negotiating about their contract or talking about it after the fact and having a discussion in person or by phone uh, or perhaps, you know, on a show such as this. <laughs> and uh, that, that those discussions they have about the terms are not going to actually change the terms of the contract until everybody agrees and they write something up and they execute it in a legal fashion. Right. Uh, now we've got a case out there that says that they can be having an IM discussion and actually result in a, an enforceable, completely valid modification of their contract. You wanna um, tell us what happened there? Sure, I heard about this case from a post that Venkat Balasubramani, uh, who you know is a friend of Twill, has been on the show uh, a few times. He writes uh, over at Eric Goldman's blog. Eric Goldman, Professor Goldman, also you know having been a uh, uh, appeared on Twill many times. I, so Venkat wrote about this case called CX Digital versus Smoking Everywhere, which comes from the uh, federal court, Southern District of Florida, uh, in the last week of March. So, uh, what we have here is a company that sells these electronic cigarettes, which are, you know, a smoking alternative, uh, evidently more healthy. And they, uh, the, this this seller of electronic cigarettes, worked with this company called CX Digital, who ran an affiliate network. Um, affiliate marketing network. So, you know, people would have their websites and have these links and sending, you know, to the extent they can send business through and sell electronic cigarettes, the uh, the affiliate, affiliate marketer would get a cut uh, and the seller of the e-cigarettes would, would pay um, a fee for, uh, you know, e for, for the sales. So, there was this contract that put a daily limit on the number of sales uh, that the, the e uh, cigarette uh, manufacturer or seller would would pay for it would pay commissions on, and that was originally set at two hundred per day. They would only pay you know commissions up to to that number per day and so then uh, these products got much more uh, popular as time went on, so there was this i m conversation and there 's an excerpt from it in the case, just you know five or six lines of this i m conversation here between the, um, the 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 seller and the affiliate uh, market network owner here. And it was just saying, you know, the, the, the affiliate marketer was saying, we can go up to 2,000 orders per day if we have your blessing. Um, you know, a little bit more banter there. Uh, the, the manufacturer was away. Uh, he says, you know, because there's a line from the IM conversation here. It says, I'm away from my computer right now. So then an hour, a couple hours later, he comes back. Uh, the, the manufacturer writes back an IM and says, no limit. And then here's where the, the funny part is. The response in, in the IM here from the affiliate marketer was one word, awesome. 
exclamation point. So mm-hmm. um, that is the, you know, the writing that served to modify this contract. And the way that it was modified was it lifted this limit of 200 sales per day that the manufacturer would pay for and went all the way up, you know, no limits. So they were then bound to pay commissions on all of the sales, which as we, you know, as we were saying, have had increased in popularity, the product had increased in popularity. So there are more and more sales. So, um, the contract was held to be modified or found to be modified, and it was it resulted in something like a $1.2 million uh, judgment in favor of the marketing company who was, because of this IM conversation, operating without uh, a limit on the number of sales it could send uh, every, every day. So a, not only was it, uh, you know, kind of cool that the contract was modified, but it was also had, you know, very significant financial consequences for the parties uh, in, involved as well. So nothing to be taken lightly, that's for sure. Yeah, I thought this case was fascinating because I've always thought of IM sort of as more like a telephone conversation than like a formal written communication. But I guess it's sort of, you know, lies in that gray area in between the two. Uh, Trevor and Diva, I imagine your contracts professors could have a lot of fun with this one. Uh, Diva, yes. what, would you, what would you say, um, you know, if you were hit with an exam question about whether or not this was a well thought out, well reasoned, proper decision under the law? I actually do think it's a proper decision under the law and the way the court construed each um, IM phrase is very interesting. So um, CX, the marketing company, suggested a 2,000 sale per day limit, and that is what the court said was um, an offer for a new term. And then the manufacturer responded with no limit, and that was a counter offer. And then ultimately CX saying awesome was acceptance of that new term. So it's kind of interesting to see how formal contract doctrines are applied to something so new as IMs, and I thought it was pretty cool. Trevor, if this conversation had happened by phone instead of IM, would you feel like the contract should have been altered? Is there any magic to having it happen in the IM format? Well, I think just in the IM format, um, it's it's provable in court. I mean, if it was just oral, um, you know, especially if, if contracts say that, that you can't uh, change the contract orally, then uh, it's completely different. Here, it's in writing, so it's essentially, I mean, IM is obviously a much uh, more colloquial and, and unofficial way of talking than, say, emailing or sending letters, but it's the same thing. It's, it's in uh, writing, and it is funny. I mean, it's almost like a, a question that you would get on an exam. Yeah, it really does seem like <laughs> just like given in our first year of class. <laughs> like, is this an offer and acceptance? And uh, as the court said, it, you know, it, they, they use uh, funny terminology as a no limit and all capitals and awesome as the as the answer. Uh, but in reality, it's uh, just as good as a contract. And you can construe a lot more vague terms to show the intent to form a new term anyway. So this is actually pretty explicit as far as trying to modify a contract would go, I think. Right. All right. Well, one thing we uh, we wind up talking a lot here uh, on Twill about is defamation law. And since we have two folks who are studying uh, law and journalism, I uh, wanted to throw in a case that highlights that, uh, something that's going on right now and unfolding over the last couple of weeks is the very popular Top Gear show um, on BBC. Love this show, it's always fun to watch. 
but they recently did a story on the Tesla where um, they didn't think too much of the um, 2008 Tesla Roadster, I believe. And uh, they actually have been um, hit with allegations that they committed defamation in connection with this story. And I bring it up because, you know, it's kind of a classic example, um, like a lot of the stuff that happens on Yelp, of someone offering an opinion. Uh, and generally, opinions are shielded from defamation, but I guess they're being also, you know, uh, painted with the brush of having said things that were untrue. So, uh, Diva, why don't you give us your take on this story? Of course, um, the party, uh, Top Gear um, and the BBC have dug in and said, you know, bring it on, basically, that they did nothing wrong here. Um, so, yeah. we'll have to see uh, where this goes. But what do you think of these allegations and this story? My intuitive opinion would be as long as it can be construed as opinion, which it seems to be the case uh, in, in my view, whether it's false or true really doesn't matter. If it's an opinion, I mean, that's, that's, that's their right to express. The, the, the truth or the falsity only comes to play if it's deemed to be a fact. You know, if it's just an opinion, then it really can't be regulated. Yeah, right, what I'm do you actually, think, Trevor? Uh, I, I mean, I'm wondering if, uh, since it's the BBC, it, 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 it's not clear whether they sued in uh, the U.S. or Britain. And I think uh, that might be, you know, a critical point here. Because, uh, right. you know, Britain has completely different libel laws than us. Here, you have to, especially if this is, uh, you know, a public company, you have to prove uh, actual malice, which is essentially saying that you knew what you said was false and you said it anyways. Which is obviously a very high threshold to pass. Yeah, even, you know, uh, giving your opinion is obviously protected under the First Amendment. But, uh, and at the same time, um, the person who is suing has to prove um, that, that what that person said was false and that they knew it was false. So it's very hard for someone to prove that. In Britain, it's the complete opposite. You're essentially uh, guilty until proven innocent in Britain. Um, you can, uh, if you get sued for libel, you basically have to prove your innocence and um, a lot of times, just giving your opinion can end up, uh, you know, um, giving your opinion can end up costing you in court. Uh, even if you're not found guilty, people will often sue um, because uh, they know you might retract your statement uh, just because you don't want to deal with, uh, with litigation. And I think they're trying to change those laws now, actually, in Britain um, to a little more uh, better standard for publications, but still it's uh, a huge difference between Britain and the U.S. Right, so I looked right, it up, so the, the, the case is pending in the high court in London uh, yeah, for so, libel yeah. and malicious falsehood. Yeah, so they're going to have a lot <laughs> of time to uh, uh, get off than they would if this was, uh, if they were sued in America. I mean, and people often, it's called libel tourism, where they, where they actually just, um, would go to Britain on purpose to sue, even if uh, you know they were um, based in America. And then we actually just passed a law, or the U.S. the Congress passed a law last year saying that uh, they're not even the U.S. won't even uh, accept British uh, liable judgments because they are just usually not uh, in accordance with the First Amendment. So um, it's very interesting seeing the difference between the, the two countries.
Yeah, piecing the, together the allegations here, um, what they are said to have done is faked scenes in, in which one roadster ran out of electricity and then another experienced brake failure. Um, now, the BBC has come back and responded that they did nothing wrong and that everything they said was true. Um, so, you know, they're going to they're going to combat those allegations. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, I can't really get all the details here and I don't know if they provided this degree of detail in their response, whether, you know, those things happened and then they had to recreate the scene in order to broadcast it on TV. I suppose we'll, we'll see that when uh, it comes out, but it's pretty fascinating. Uh, Evan, any thoughts here? Yeah, I think the import or the meaning of, of what, uh, you know, what, what, one sees or how one interprets this notion of pushing the car into the garage when Tesla says that it never ran out of charge. That's the most intriguing part of this because that is one of the alleged defamatory statements here. And so, you know, is that really a statement of fact, you know, which would, at least under the U.S. law, I mean, as Trevor established for us, it's Britain, so who the heck knows what's going to happen with this. But, you know, at least under the majority rule in the U.S. law, if it's a true and a real fact and not just an opinion or commentary on something, then that's certainly not uh, defamatory. Well, you know, what does that mean? Is that, is that really, uh, you know, were the producers of the show saying that it had uh, lost its charge or were they just implying that? Or uh, is that just more of a, uh, uh, a way of showing visually that the, uh, that the car was, uh, was no good? So... Um, I, I like it for, for that angle on it, the kind of the, the weirdness, the, the uh, ambiguity of, of the mean import of, of all of that. Right. Um, well, we'll have to stay tuned and see what happens with that one. I think it's pretty interesting, especially against uh, the backdrop of the fact that defamation is such a hot button issue in connection with social media and various online sharing and curation technologies uh, such as Yelp. So <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll follow that one uh, with interest. And, Drink them uh, if you got them. Exactly. Um, also really fascinating, I think, is uh, this development of, um, of the Zidiva uh, technology, a new streaming startup. And I think it's uh, really interesting against the backdrop of Amazon's Cloud Drive and Cloud Player. So I want to get into Zediva and what it does and whether it has any sort of legal future. Uh, but first, I want to thank our other sponsor for this episode of This Week in Law, and that is Carbonite Pro. Uh, Carbonite is something I use in my own legal practice. I encourage anyone who has a business or personal uh, store of data uh, to use Carbonite because while on-site backup is a wonderful thing to do, uh, you really need to have an off-site backup as well as we have seen quite recently and quite graphically when disaster when disasters strike, uh, your on-site materials may all be completely unusable and you need to have things stored in a remote location to be able to get at your data. Um, also, the wonderful thing about Carbonite is it's not just for disaster protection, it's for convenience. It's a way of leveraging storage in the cloud to be able to get at your data that it has backed up anytime, no matter where you may be. It place shifts and time shifts, if you will, your data uh, for your convenience. So while a disaster can be devastating, uh, you know, of course you cannot, if you're a lawyer, lose your client files and billing records. 
um, more and more offices are accordingly using Carbonite Pro online backup. With Carbonite Pro, your files are backed up automatically, so it really gets done, and it gets done continuously. They're stored securely and safely off-site. Plus, each employee can access their backed up files from any computer or on their smartphone with a free app. Prices start at just $10 a month. So start your free one-month trial at CarbonitePro.com. That's CarbonitePro.com. And when you go there and start the free trial, don't forget that if you go back uh, and sign up, you're going to get all that protection for a year at a time for a very, very reasonable price. Uh, once your trial is done. So thank you so much for Carbonite for your support. And uh, we really appreciate your service and your support and help with This Week in Law and the TWIT Network. So folks, let's talk about Zediva. And uh, Professor James Grimmelman over in your neck of the woods in New York uh, has uh, done a pretty thoroughgoing analysis of what it is and the fact that he doesn't think it has a prayer from the copyright standpoint. But, you know, last week we talked a lot about uh, Amazon's Cloud Drive and Cloud Player and the various legals, legal issues around that of letting users upload their own data to a centralized server and then access it um, from other devices and in other locations. This attempts to skirt those issues by providing a virtual DVD player um, so it, it operates on the premise of, you know, a video rental store. You go in and you pick a movie that you want and then you stream it from Zediva. And while you're doing it, that movie is unavailable to other users. Um, so they are trying to uh, duplicate the video rental uh, experience in the brick and mortar world and say, well, if that's legal, then what we're doing is perfectly legal as well. But Professor Grimmelman uh, thinks that they're going to have a lot more problems than that under the copyright law. Evan, uh, what do you think of Zediva, and do you agree with Professor Grimmelman? Uh, well, it's it's an intriguing um, it's an intriguing concept technologically. It, it kind of um, you know it, it makes sense. It seems like a natural extension of, of things to be to to you know a natural extension of ways to think about making content available uh, online. It's a nice um, copyright dodging angle that they're taking here, as Professor Grimmelman says. And um, but you know he's Professor Grimmelman really doesn't mince words. You know the title of his post is that it's so not going to to work. And, um, you know, I, I found it really interesting that he made it to this, uh, that he put so much uh, credence in this 19, I think it was a 1991 opinion called um, Red Horn, which was a situation where it was a video rental store and they would, they would allow you to go into a back room where there was a TV and then the employee would press play on a VCR and, you know, let you watch the movie there um, because you know, there's there seems to be some important distinctions. And again, Professor Grimmelman is very thorough and, you know, his analysis is very, very well done in this. Um, but I think that there are some interesting factual dissimilarities from this that, that make it uh, a bit more uh, or actually make it a bit less risky for Zadiva than than what the good professor would 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 bring on here. Uh, the, the big important difference is the fact that these are making 
videos available for watching uh, in a person's home. So it's much more like a private uh, viewing of these uh, works rather than a public performance, which is really what was the death knell for the business model in this case called Red Horn, where you could go to the back of the video store and watch the, watch the movie. So he goes on to say some other interesting things, too, about the, um, the Cartoon Network case versus CSC uh, Holdings, uh, which is the, um, the, the Cablevision uh, case that we, we talked about uh, last week when we were talking about the Amazon cloud uh, uh, scenario, brouhaha, if you, if you will. So um, it, it really is, uh, oh, and I guess the point I was wanting to make with, with what he said about that was the important thing was that it was an individual copy. The thing that made the, cab- the, that the, the cloud DVR okay in the Cablevision case was that it was an individual cached copy, one copy per user that really made what was one of the things that made that okay in, in terms of, of that business model. So um, it, 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 when we get to these kinds of discussions about fine distinctions to be made in copyright law, it, it very well illustrates how some of the... Um, some of those very distinctions we're trying to draw are rather silly and don't make a whole lot of sense when you look at it kind of step back and, and put some, uh, you know, just general wisdom or common sense uh, approach to all this stuff. The movie uh, studios clearly just would, their interest in going after something like Zadiva would be just to extract another licensing fee that they would get, you know, if it were streamed on, on Netflix, um, whereas they wouldn't necessarily get that, uh, you know, per rental if you were going into Blockbuster or getting it from a Redbox box or, or, or something like that. So uh, things like this, innovative applications of technology reveal some of the uh, inconsistencies and kind of uh, strangeness or... Um, anachronisms of, of copyright law very well. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that. it's the difference. And, and Diva, I want to get your take on Zdiva in just a moment. Uh, but I guess it's the difference between the old Netflix model where they would send you the DVD and the new one where they stream it. Uh, the new one required licenses where the old one, you know, worked on the video store rental kind of premise where you didn't have to have an individual license for each um, DVD to be able to rent it out and physically provide it to people. Um, Diva, do you think these folks have a prayer? Um, see, the reason why I think Professor focused in on the Red Horn case is not because of the facts necessarily, but because of the key uh, line of reasoning when they said um, the definition of a public performance, if the same copy of a work is repeatedly played, even if it's at different times, it still constitutes a public performance. So whether that's like a big picture view or not, I think Professor Grillman was trying to predict which way a court would go. Right. And with that definition right. of a public performance, I think that this would constitute public performance and therefore within the realm of the control of the copyright holder. So I think he was just trying to predict based on past cases where it would fall out. And I think he's right. It almost seems like the, I mean, and I didn't go back and read the Red Horn case, but it almost seems as if it was a little bit self contradictory because in that case they did talk about the private nature of you know these rooms that you would you would go to and so 
isn't I mean, if, if all we're coming down to is making a distinction on the fact that, you know, the 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 little enclosure that you're in to watch this movie happens to be located within the walls of a video store rather than being within your home somewhere else. You know, that is what makes a difference as to whether or not this uh, public or I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say public because that's the whole point we're trying to get at. That's the, the that's what makes a difference as to whether this performance is public or private. Is, um, you know, it's, it seems really fine. In the Red Horn case, I thought they held the opposite, that just because you're confined, I might be wrong, but it said just because you're confined to a, a private space doesn't really have any indication on whether or not it's a public or private uh, well, yeah, I, that's that's what it said, but there was some right. language in there, at least in this excerpt, that, that kind of at least made a nod to the fact that, um, that, that you know, that you were... <laughs> you know, not it wasn't like just being out there in the open yeah. as if you were standing out there, you know, next to where the videos are, are sold. That's why I thought it was a little bit internally contradictory or self-contradictory to, to yeah. a certain extent. And, and then what, what sense does that really make? You're still just watching a movie and no one else can see you watching it. That it, it right. Yes, there are there are metaphysical distinctions between that. But why do those distinctions translate into differences in the way that the copyright law is going to be applied? That's my question That's, you know, for all this. Why do I feel like these people going into back rooms in video stores were probably not renting The Lion King? I don't know. Oh, well, that Just was a thought. different case. There was a, there, <laughs> he, there was one where, you know, you go in for five minute increments. I have no idea what that one was all about. <laughs> okay. Uh, Trevor, any thoughts on Zadiva? I mean, it's certainly, you got to hand it to him for trying to uh, innovate and come up with a creative business model and some novel legal arguments but uh you know and, and in some sense i wish that you know there was a way to make this kind of thing work but as professor grimman comes down to it you know at the end of his analysis the closest thing we have to look at out there that actually works and can legally exist is netflix and they have had to jump through tons of licensing hoops to be able to do what they do so what do you think i mean as i agree with professor grimman's point which is that you know, this is kind of a clever legal hack, as they explained. Uh, mm -hmm. But in reality, the loophole um, isn't really there. Or if it is, um, courts are just going to allow it. Um, they will find a way to shut this down because this is just an, an enormous, if, if this is left to stand, then it will change literally the whole industry of renting movies online and, and essentially just, um, just, have a, a get around of uh, copyright and it just seems to me that how however clever it might have been and however well it's working now there's just no way that courts will let this yeah and in terms of enforcement because one of their key factors is that when one dvd is checked out no one else can check out that exact copy but who's going to enforce that you know if they have one more of the same copy going around who's really going to ever know so kind of also enforcement's an issue and i believe it um I could be wrong, but if if they take out the DVD, multiple people can still watch it um, from different places. So that's just another yeah, um, layer of the public performance, which they, I just don't see them being able to get around. Right. Well, I want to talk about a couple of cases that have come down recently um, that have whoppingly big dollar numbers involved in them. Um, first, we I don't think we've discussed on the show yet, uh, although I know we've discussed it elsewhere on the Twit Network. Uh, the 75 trillion in damages 
that uh, the RIAA has sought against LimeWire, 75 trillion. And there have been all kinds of uh, wonderful infographics and things out there about how much money that is. And Evan, maybe we did talk about it last week because you were talking about uh, stacking the money up. Uh, yeah, that was uh, John yes. Frieden. He said it would go to the moon and back like 48 right, right, times, right. something like that. Exactly, exactly. So we I'm did touch on number. it last week. I, want, I wanted to just toss it out there. There has been, you know, no um, new real development. Of course, the, the judge, Kimba Wood, um, thinks that this request is absurd. Uh, clearly, there will be a large dollar amount um, thrown in there, but the statutory damages um, allow for very, very large um, awards in copyright cases. Um, so I wanted to uh, toss this to our law students. Again, um, this is one for your con law class now um, about the constitutionality of statutory damages under the Copyright Act. Uh, Trevor, any thoughts about uh, parties who seek $75 trillion in damages in lawsuits? Well, I mean, just from a practical point of view, I don't understand why they would do this in the first place. They knew this would get out in the news and everyone would laugh at them. You know, uh, obviously downloading music for free um, is illegal, but the RIAA goes out of their way to kind of screw their customers, essentially. They, you know, they're suing them for, you know, they'll sue just a regular 13-year-old girl for $22,000 because she downloaded one song uh, for free that she shouldn't have. Um, it's just it's just poor PR in my opinion because it makes them look ridiculous in, on one end, and you know a, a, a judge a judge isn't going to give them seventy five trillion. They must know that considering it's literally more money than there is in the world. So from that right. point of view, right. I just don't see. Um, I mean, I know they're 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 looking at it as they should be able to collect for every download that that happens, but it's just not tenable and they probably know that in the end. It's almost like they want to give ammunition to the forces out there who want the Copyright Act declared unconstitutional in this yeah. regard. You know, it's sort of a graphic example of how things can get out of control and absurd. And it's also another example of businesses, you know, <laughs> deciding to intentionally put on the black hat. You know, we were talking about the New York Times and uh, News Corp putting up barriers and wanting to really, you know, I mean, it, they cannot help but come across as the bad guy when they decide that they want to block access as their business model. And the RIAA is kind of in the same boat, you know, it's sort of PR be damned. We can do it under the law, so we will. Uh, Diva, any thoughts? I mean, just have a constitutional spin using your word. We're, we're not supposed to give um, statutory damages that are absurd, and this seems to be the epitome of that, so... It's a good example. All right. Well, so a, an example of a court deciding that a damages award was just too big, and this number was uh, far less than uh, the one that we're talking about in the trillions of dollars. But uh, there was a um, patent case that was filed against Apple regarding its cover flow technology. And, uh, you know, a, a longstanding patent dispute, uh, Mirror Worlds. Uh, claimed that its patents were infringed in uh, coming up with that uh, methodology of making folk uh, making um, text and graphics flow by nicely as uh, they do in iTunes, um, and uh, 
they got uh, an enormous award against Apple that Apple appealed um, and the appellate court agreed with Apple and uh, the judge was uh, definitely uh, of the mind that 625.5 million in damages uh, would have been too high for this kind of infringement. Uh, Evan, were you um, surprised by this case and or, or is it just another example of how courts are going to intervene if damages get too high? I didn't know quite what to, to make of this. I mean, the, the, the evidence would seem to suggest that the $625 million was grossly out of proportion to the you know, so-called market value of this, because there was some some evidence before the court that said it had, that the the patents had first been assigned for two hundred and ten grand, and then again for five million. So it, apparently there was a you know an, a, an accelerating or escalating value to these things. But with either of those numbers, you know, you'd have to um, you know really be on a uh, a nonlinear upward trend uh, to get up to six hundred and twenty-five uh, million or two hundred and eight and a half million for each uh, of the three three patents. So, um, you know, it that that seemed to make some sense to me that it should be cut down. What what I was uh, uh, interested in here was the quote from the Yale professor who, you know, was was expressing frustration over that. And here's the the quote from the article it says it makes me angry personally, not because of the money, but because of the deliberate failure to acknowledge work that we would have made freely available as academics and that companies will not acknowledge because there is so much money involved. You know, that seems to me, and you know, I, I am, um, I, I, I don't really want to live with the consequences of, of calling a Yale professor disingenuous, but I'll go ahead and say it. It seems a little bit disingenuous to me, you know, that, that he would say something like that. Anytime, I mean, and, and I think I've said this before on the show, I know I say it a lot, just, you know, drinking beer with other lawyers and stuff like this or whatever. Um, anytime somebody says it's not about the money, you know, that is a direct message right to my brain that says, you know, this is about the money. It's kind of like a person who says, I have the highest standard of ethics. You know, well, then you ought to start questioning that person's ethics. But in any yes. event, that just really just kind of like, what, why, you know, why are you saying that? If it's, if it's, if you're not angry, if it's not about the money, then, you know, um, and again, I know that he wasn't directly involved with the litigation because he had, um, um, you know, assigned these patents. And so he wasn't one of the plaintiffs here. But at the same time, I just, you know, I wondered why that was necessary and why that sentiment was expressed. It seemed a little bit like a little bit of, uh, of whining. That's not really necessary in something like this. Yes. Or maybe we can officially dub this the Jerry Falwell principle. Uh, yes. Come on. Uh, yes, Diva. There are two additional things at play here. I think that the fact that Apple should have been aware of uh, pre-existing patents because, you know, in America, people are, uh, you're supposed to be on the lookout for patents that already exist. You have a duty to do, to do so. And a company such as Apple certainly has the resources to do that. So I think that's also a reason why it weighed against Apple. And also just the, the sheer amount that the patents were sold for is not really the only indicator of how much damages there should be. We have to look at lost bits and things of that nature. So I think that just because, you know, the, the patent initially sold for $200,000 and then $5 million is not the sole uh, determining factor for damages in this case. Yeah. Oh my gosh, what a plaintiff's lawyer. <laughs> in the making. <laughs> Trevor, any thoughts? I mean, I would agree with that. Oh, this, another this, one, great. This is, her, this, is her, this is her specialty, so uh, I'm not, not going really, to really, no. comment too much. 
But it is true. I mean, to, to look at how much the patent sold for uh, doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. And obviously, we don't have all the facts here, how much money um, that Apple actually made off this product. It might have been much less than $600 million. I mean, it's, got, it's built into their operating system, so imagine it's pretty high. That's another good point. So uh, I think, um, you know, this is a case where um, the judge set aside the, the jury's damages, but it might have been, you know, still very high, much higher than, than $5 million. There you go, Dee, but the, when you're doing your patent litigation on the plaintiff's side, you know, you, you said, you know, of course, it's built into their operating system. You know, plaintiffs, lawyers, you know, in patent infringement cases, they'll take, you know, like this, the most obscure feature of some, you know, oh. larger system that's covered by the claims of the patent and talk about how that was like what sold the, the whole, that's like what made, uh, you know, Microsoft great was just some little subroutine deep within notepad.exe. Making obscurity seem special is my specialty right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they teach you in law school, right? Yeah. No one would ever buy MacBooks if it wasn't for this program. It's pretty good. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I threw in a couple of stories here toward the end um, simply because I thought they would be fun to discuss with a couple of law students. Uh, one is uh, from... I, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce uh, his name right, but he writes for Above the Law, either Eli or Ellie Mistal, uh, and uh, highlighting the fact that down in Miami, there is a law student's bill of rights floating around, and uh, Above the Law did not, you know, really take this too seriously and did a nice job of eviscerating it. We've uh, talked before on the show about how law students have um, rattled their sabers recently about the notion um, that they, uh, you know, in this terrible economy we've experienced in the last few years, have uh, gone to law school and gotten themselves in enormous amounts of debt with, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's becoming terribly difficult to get any sort of um, really decent job coming out of law school these days. So um, we've got, had a lot of grousing about that. And now we have uh, law students at um, Miami wanting to sort of change the way law is taught at their school and have um, certain things uh, on the books, so, sort of like... Uh, um, if we haven't talked about it in classroom or it hasn't been in the assigned reading, we're not going to be blindsided by that and ask a question about it in class. So they're trying to sort of hack the way professors teach. Uh, so I wanted to toss this in front of you guys and see if you were more of the um, stop whining kind of mentality or, yeah, you know, law students really have it rough and deserve um, a little bit of clarification and respect from their faculty. Uh, Trevor, you want to take this first? Um, well, I'm definitely part of the stop whining crowd. I mean, when you, look <laughs> at the, when you look at the students' bill of rights, it's just like half of them are just so ridiculous. And half of them, you can't even, uh, you can't even quantify what, what it would even mean. Like, the first one is the right of students to, give, to have an unbiased legal education. What does unbiased mean? Uh, there's, there's, there's always going to be biases of professors yeah. teaching ability even if they don't catch want all to. Type thing. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure every single professor would fail the first student bill of rights and there would just be no law <laughs> professors after that. So I mean and then you gotta look at like like any student can review an exam with a within a reasonable amount of time. I mean first of all what's a reasonable amount of time? Second of all, how, how big of a problem is this this student can't 
contact these professors. I feel like the student wrote these because they, they were just harassing professors and eventually the professors just gave up talking to him because he clearly is very lost. It just sounds like a lot of misplaced aggression, like you said earlier. Yes, I certainly do relate to the plight of the law student 100%, but this seems like a student who doesn't have the ability to be proactive and do things on his own, like he's asking to not be tested on things that were outside the scope of the exact reading. The whole point of law school is to kind of like, you know, think outside the box and extrapolate from what you're given. And I kind of feel like this kind of person shouldn't really try to be in this field, personally, not to be too harsh. Yeah, like the, the first year of law school is when they kind of weed out these type of students that would probably write the Student Bill of Rights. You know, yeah. professors aren't supposed to be nice and cheery and understanding they're there to teach you how it's going to be when it's a lawyer when you're up in front of a judge you make one little mistake and you're going to get reamed out and your case is going to get thrown out and you're going to get sued by your your client and that's not to say that we haven't we've been frustrated with professors many yeah, times but it's like kind of just goes with the territory right i think i heard you say he in there in describing the person who came up with the Bill of Rights, um, and it's funny, uh, Above the Law made that assumption too, but they heard back and uh, no, indeed it was a woman. Uh, Ely uh, over there said, I assumed it was a guy because it reeked of the bravado inspired by a Y chromosome. <laughs> so um, it, it was a from the uh, female brain that this emanated. Uh, Evan, any thoughts on uh, law students and their plight in the world today? As much as I would like to make a comment about the bravado of the Y chromosome, uh, <laughs> I'll just take that somewhere else. Um, yeah, can't we all just be a little bit more, you know, coddling of these these poor kids? Um, I, I am really biased when it comes to, to things like this, uh, you know, when it comes to like academic regulation and stuff. I did my undergraduate work at Wabash College, a small liberal arts college in Indiana. And we didn't have a student handbook. Uh, we didn't have any rules. And again, I realized that this is not like the university trying to impose rules on the students. It's actually the other way around, but the same principle applies here. We, at Wabash, we didn't have a student handbook. We didn't have you know, a bunch of rules. There was one rule. It was called the gentleman's rule. Wabash is an all men's college. And the gentleman's rule is you shall conduct yourself as a gentleman and responsible citizen at all times, both on and off campus. And so, you know, that's everything you need to know. And that's everything, and, and you know, that, that applies to, to, to everyone there. Yes, there are female faculty and all this stuff, but still it's a larger principle that goes into to all of this. You know, everybody d deserves to be treated with civility and fairness and uh, responsibility and accountability. And that goes, you know, that's, that's bi-directional. Instructors need to be responsible to their students, you know, that they're in charge of, of teaching, just like students need to be uh, responsible that they're living up to their end of the bargain, we'll re do the reading, come to class prepared, uh, be, be ready to, to be challenged and to, to challenge other students and, and stuff like that. So, so when it, I guess what I'm saying, you know, by explaining the origins of my bias and, and why I feel that way, uh, or I guess it would actually be a prejudice towards something uh, like this. You know, I'm saying that, you know, this is a, this is a bit, um, this is a bit, um, coming at it the wrong way. These are important issues. If people are, if students are being disrespected and they're not getting the, the value from their education and they're being treated, you know, uh, in violation of some standard of reasonable uh, fairness, then something's got to be done. But just declarations like this are just great fodder for um, abovethelaw.com. 
Right, exactly, um, which hardly needs uh, more fodder. It manages to find uh, quite a bit just in uh, our day-to-day -day doings as lawyers and law firms. Um, and if it, anybody out there who's listening or watching hasn't read Above the Law, sort of the gossip sheet of the legal uh, world and uh, is always highly entertaining and very snarky. Um, so, go ahead. We just have, we actually have a story up on Legal As She Spoke, the New York Law School blog, about the same topic, and someone uh, kind of uh, expanded on what uh, above the laws and uh, how, how legitimate this could actually be, even if it somehow passed the student body. So uh, if anyone wants to check that out, it's at uh, lacesblog.com. Right. So the, the take there is um, what sort of force it could actually have and, and what sort yeah. of impact on the university. Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, angle and uh, I appreciate the pointer to that. Um, so another thing that I wanted to discuss that's always sort of out there, we don't talk about it much on the show, but uh, one of the most vocal segments of the legal marketplace these days is the e-discovery arena. And these are the vendors out there who are trying to make it easier or even possible to navigate the ocean of information, uh, be it on paper or electronically stored, uh, that it goes into resolving a big lost, a lawsuit. And these folks are um, very determined and very creative in the way they market their services. And they certainly, you know, are always in your face as to, you know, how competent you are with your e-discovery and whether you're using the right tools. And it's a very competitive field. So one of these entities, someone called Blackstone Discovery, um, did a study as to, um, how its artificial intelligence, as used in e-discovery software, uh, can cut down the time and the cost uh, involved in going through all the discovery information involved in a lawsuit. And uh, basically showed how what used to take um, just enormous amounts of money, uh, six million documents in an older antitrust suit against CBS, analyzed at a cost of more than $2.2 million. Um, this Blackstone company helped analyze 1.5 million documents for less than $100,000. Um, and I bring it up for two reasons. I bring it up because, um, number one, uh, I think that the notion of artificial intelligence as applied to this field of endeavor is pretty interesting. You know, they tr try to have alarms go off, for example, um, when you're following along with an email exchange between people and all of a sudden the exchange cuts off and you can tell that the people have decided to talk about the topic by phone and, you know, that the, the assumption is that they might have done that to cover their tracks so there is no paper trail of what they're doing and they, the software will call that out as a red flag and uh, encourage the lawyers working on the case to delve into that more um, thoroughly. Uh, and other sorts of tweaks like that. And I also bring it up because of the notion that, um, you know, as more and more of this becomes part of the way law is practiced, there is perhaps less for people like Diva and Trevor to do immediately as they come out of law school because law students are notoriously, if they go to work for large law firms, put into the role of trying to navigate their way through these 
large seas of discovery data. Um, so I'll throw it out to you first, Trevor. Uh, uh, comment either on you know the interestingness of the software or the impact economically on the legal profession or both. Well, yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, um, you brought it up, but I think a lot the a lot of companies realized in the last couple of years when the the economy kind of took a downturn and they had to lay off a lot of people. Um, the technology has advanced so far at this point that sometimes you know they're not going to have they're not going to need to hire those people back because they have programs like this where it said you know in 1978 it would cost it costed CBS. $2.2 million to go through a bunch of documents, whereas now it would just be a fraction of the cost because they can have this e-discovery artificial intelligence. I mean, at the same time, um, you know, if people know that, that, people, that uh, lawyers are just using this, these computer programs to search through documents, there's, there's easy ways to get around that too, you know. If you're going to talk about something, just talk about it in code words, and then um, maybe the opposite side won't be able to pick it up. Um, so I think it's not going to completely replace lawyers, but it definitely offers a cheaper solution in some areas. And it definitely, definitely doesn't bode well for us coming out of law school, I can guarantee that much. Well, actually, it could bode well for us in a way because, I mean, just some firsthand experience. I worked at Skadden Arps after college as a legal assistant, and most of my tasks were to manage data rooms. And they looked much like the photo and the article that we were given about this. Um, so we would have like hundreds and hundreds of boxes to sift through, and we would charge, you know, a lot higher than we probably should have to go through them. So I think for efficiency's sake, it's definitely valuable. And also how it might go well for us is that maybe the level of work we'll be given right away will be higher because we'll no longer have to do the sift through all the boxes. That's true. Once we have a job, it'll be much, much better. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would think, you know, as someone who used to work for a big firm long ago and, and was involved in a couple of large discovery cases that uh, including using what was then, you know, the state of the art in e-discovery software, I'm sure it's come a long way since then, um, the, the tedium was pretty high for the lawyers involved. Um, you know, the, the more that we can use software to automate those tasks, and make the lawyers actually have, you know, a stimulating job to do, the better for the individual lawyers. I don't know if it's the better for the law firm because, you know, either way they get to charge their lawyers out at exorbitant amounts of money. Right, exactly. Uh, Evan, as someone within a firm, what do you, what do you think of all this? I, I think I have three points on this. Let me remember what they are because I just had them in my mind there. The first is um, I think it's easy to overstate uh, the number of cases that law firms work on that uh, implicate or require this type of advanced technology. I mean, yes, this technology is very helpful in, uh, you know, the Enron case, for example, or, you know, like, you know, huge cases with, um, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of documents. And, you know, there are still a lot of cases out there, litigated matters, where, um, you know, despite what the electronic discovery vendors who spam you, I mean, who send you a bunch of marketing material and lot, you know, want you to believe, um, you know, there's still a lot of cases that aren't all that, you know, intensive when it comes to the amount of electronically stored information. So that's one point. The second point is that, you know, the use of these technologies, which I think of kind of as semantic technology, because I like thinking about the semantic web and I think of, you know, the emphasis on the meaning of stuff as being an applicable principle for not only a, a fixed data set, but the web uh, it, it, at large. 
you know, the use of these types of technologies to do this stuff just seems like a natural extension of the, the application of technology to do the law that's been going on ever since, you know, there has been, uh, uh, there have been law offices. I mean, we got to remember at one point it was innovative to use carbon paper so that you didn't have to type a document twice or write a document twice. And then, you know, it was innovative for uh, secretaries to have uh, access to a telex machine so that you could get, you know, this little strip of paper so you could say, oh my gosh, you can send a message coast to coast without, you know, involving Western Union and all of that stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, there's been innovation in the way that technology applies to the practice of law, and this is just a natural extension of that. And that leads into my third point about all this is this is really good for lawyers because, by golly, if you ask... Um, or at least most of the people I've had conversations with about this, you know, why you chose to go to law school, one of the most frequent, you know, frequently given answers, and I'm sure I, I, I trust that, you know, everybody on this call would kind of chime in with this. One of the, the, the great things about being a lawyer is that it's intellectually challenging. You know, which would you rather spend your time doing? Would you rather spend your time thumbing through a, a stack of documents, you know, 10,000 pages high, or would you rather spend your time thinking about the application of the Rooker-Feldman doctrine to these facts, you know, pled in a state court proceeding? You know, you're going to choose the more intellectually challenging, the more stimulating uh, um, thing to do. So to the extent that we can free ourselves up from the more mundane ministerial tasks of the practice of law, uh, you know, the, the, pra the, the practice of law will become more satisfying, and I would, uh, I would assume, or at least it seems intuitive to believe, that to the extent the practice of law is more enjoyable, uh, you know, lawyers may be happier, it may help their reputations, and I imagine that, you know, you're just giving your client much better services when it's actually something that's not seen as so burdensome and fraught with uh, friction and, 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 and tedium. So, there's, there's many ways of seeing this as um, either neutral or, or good, a good development. Yep, I agree with you. Uh, somebody who's been having good developments since he initially came out of the box on his live tour is Charlie Sheen. I understand that his appearance in Cleveland went very, very well as opposed to some of his earlier ones where he was getting not so great reviews. So um, you go, Charlie. Get out there and uh, live the Sheen dream. And while he's at it, apparently, his uh, company called Hieroglyph has been <laughs> trademarking like crazy uh, various uh, trademark statements that Mr. Sheen has made lately, including Vatican Assassin, Violent Torpedo of Truth, Living the Sheen Dream, Winning, and Duh Winning. Uh, lots more of them. There's an article um, from a British firm called Malison's Stephen Jacques. Uh, it's IP whiteboard blog, Paul Quinn, uh, did a roundup of all of these various trademark applications uh, filed by Charlie Sheen's entity Hieroglyph. So um, I bring it out there because I think it's just kind of entertaining and fun. And also because, you know, the, the idea of getting a trademark in some of the things he has tossed out, such as winning or tiger blood, uh, might be a little more challenging than um, some of the other things he's applied for. Uh, Evan, any thoughts on this? Reminds me of Paris Hilton and her efforts to trademark That's Hot. And I think mm -hmm. yeah, I checked the USPTO website. There's still an opposition proceeding going on. Some other guy registered That's Hot in, you know, 2005-ish, 2004-ish, 2005-ish. So, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, 
and, and how many times do we go around thinking of that's hot as an origin of, of goods and services these days? So I, I, I pray to the good Lord above that this time next year we won't be having a conversation about Charlie Sheen. That's all I got to say. <laughs> well, his audiences uh, apparently have been working counter to your prayers. Um, Trevor, I'm any moving thoughts to Detroit. On... That's the, they know how to. They know how exactly. to do things in Detroit. That's right. Well, they've got Eminem, so mm -hmm. uh, it's funny that Cleveland can have Sheen. Trevor, what were you going to say? Uh, I think it's funny that that I think there was people who saw this Charlie Sheen phenomenon coming right away and decided to trademark like half of these things before he even had a chance to because they knew that um, these things were catching on fire. So they're like, well, we better get them before Sheen does. Well, they're trying to. Yeah, they're at least trying to. Um, right. And right. like you said, I mean, like a phrase like winning, you know, as, as soon as you think of that, somebody trying to trademark that, it, it sounds kind of ridiculous. Right. You can't Reminds really block me, that Remember off. the, maybe some, some hipsters wear it now that, that, uh, brand winners only or winner's circle or something or maybe it was you know I, I was you know busy drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon at a art gallery and I, I don't never mind I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to hear that story at some point Evan maybe not right now um, Diva uh, what were you going to say I mean you know it's kind of ridiculous but you can argue that he's really built up such a brand association or how they would call it in trademark law secondary meaning that he'll win out against these other people for certain terms that are like a little bit more higher in the hierarchy of what's protectable. You know, maybe tiger blood, it's, you know, very strongly associated with him and whatever product he's going to connect it with because you have to connect the trademark with products and services. Like, I'm guessing he said clothing and things like that. So there's an argument there that it's very much associated with, with his new brand. Right. Creating. Well, the footnote to the story that is not included in this article is the extent to which people have gone out and registered these URLs as well. And uh, whether Sheen's company, Hieroglyph, has attempted to do that too, I'm sure they're, they're trying if they have not yet done it. Uh, and maybe now our listeners will go out and see um, exactly whether SoberValleyRanch.com is available or not. Um, so with that, I think we'll uh, go into our resource of the week. Uh, this is something I think you linked to, Evan, that I checked out and thought was uh, really, really cool. It's over at LLRX, a uh, wonderful resource on law and technology by Ken Struten over there. It's part two in a series of articles he's done on the topic of emerging legal issues in social media. And uh, it's a great guide. I would put it up there um, sort of on a par with the EFF's blogger guide and materials and uh, the guide for podcasters that Colette Vogel worked on a while back. You know, definite guidelines and something that should be in everybody's toolbox um, who's engaged in social media uh, personally and professionally. Um, they touch on the legal issues around professional journals and blogs uh, and a whole host of other um, various uh, things that we uh, talk about on the show all the time. Um, so I encourage you to go check out legal issues, emerging legal issues in social media um, for things um, of that nature, including lots of the stuff we talked about today, uh, defamation and getting around 
protective measures that are put in place and privacy and all the things that regularly come up on our show. So uh, do take a look at that resource. And uh, another resource I just wanted to mention, uh, mentioned it earlier in the show, if you have not checked out the current issue of Triangulation, where Tom Merritt and Leo Laporte interview Cory Doctorow, they talk about paywalls, they talk about business models, they talk a, a ton about publishing and the future of publishing. Um, so a really wonderful, uh, I think, point of interest for the folks who listen and tune into Twill. And uh, for our tip of the week, I'm going to go to Diva first and see if she has any tips for our listeners. Um, this might be kind of a micro tip, but if you curate what you're doing, you're safe. You have to add value. So keep that in mind when you're linking to paywalled items. <laughs> All right. Good, good to know. And uh, Trevor? Um, I think along those same lines, it's just with... Uh, like you said, social media just um, is involved in so many aspects of our lives. You have to be careful what you say because even uh, just uh, one line on Twitter can be sued for libel. So um, make sure you think twice before you put something out there. That's right. And, and listen to Twill to make sure that uh, what you're doing isn't running afoul of the latest in the court's analyses of how this all unfolds. Uh, so with that, I want to go ahead and wrap this issue, this episode of This Week in Law and thank our wonderful panel, uh, Trevor and Diva from New York Law School. We really appreciate your being here. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your Legal As She Is Spoke blog and uh, what its purpose and goal is. Diva, why don't you start? Uh, well I think the purpose and goal of Legal As She Is Spoke is to kind of provide um, an angle that is not covered by the mass media, a legal angle that either the media failed to discuss in detail or perhaps discuss inaccurately from a legal perspective. So it kind of gives law students the opportunity to break, to break news in their own way. And it, it was uh, Legal As She Is Spoke has been around for about two years now, started by the program of law and journalism at New York Law School. and. Um, so far, I mean, now that we've uh, started to build up a readership, it's it's uh, turned out really well. We we've been we we churn out multiple articles a day. Um, just we take, like Diva says, we take an article maybe from the New York Times that, that talks about a legal issue, but doesn't really explain it in detail, or maybe they may get some facts wrong because you know reporters sometimes when talking about legal issues um, are going to gloss over things or completely leave them out or say something wrong. So we're there to kind of explain a lot of the public. Right. And so um, I always like to tell people where they can find our panelists uh, after the show, if they'd like to get in touch, if they have more questions, obviously they can find you guys at the Legal As She Is Spoke blog. Um, also, Diva, are you on Twitter? I'm actually not. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's okay. Any other uh, websites or blogs that you want to plug before we go ahead and sign off? Um, I actually run a Twitter feed on WikiLeaks in the law. It's called WL Legal, and mm -hmm. I actually curate um, a lot of news about uh, WikiLeaks and U.S. law and the effects uh, a possible prosecution on WikiLeaks can have on the future of journalism. So, and he's been uh, very successful with this. If you want to check it out, it's WL Legal on Twitter. Did you, uh, Trevor? Did you see that video of? Um that, that that DJ got, I think it was in Iceland, of Julian Assange dancing in the nightclub. Did you see yeah. that? Isn't that awesome? Not the best dancer, but it was, it was <laughs> funny. 
That's okay. He has other skills, apparently. Care. <laughs> um, so that's WL Legal on Twitter. I'm looking forward to following that. Thanks so much for being on the show and uh, for all your thoughts and insights today, guys. It's been great. So, Thanks so much. And Evan, uh, it's always fun when we have law students on the show, don't you think? It is. It is. It's it's especially fun. So uh, yeah. yeah, great great conversation. So uh, really had a really had a good time. We talked about a lot of things. So yeah, we did. All right. So uh, we we can continue the discussion, of course, on, on interesting things that will go on uh, in forthcoming weeks and months over at Evan's blog, internetcases.com, where he's always highlighting uh, the latest and greatest in technology law and in his Twitter feed, which is also Internet Cases. Yes, uh, so thanks again for joining us. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and say goodbye until next week at 11 o'clock Pacific time, 1800 UTC, where you can catch us live at live.twit.tv. And in the meantime, head over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw. I always post up the video of this show and uh, also um, lots of questions about what we're going to talk about on the next show. So we'd love to get your comments and feedback on those. And with that, we'll say goodbye for this weekend long. Take care. <laughs>